WBSC, Wayne, New Jersey. On the radio, 88.7 FM. Online, gobrave.org. A tune-in radio station, part of the William Patterson Broadcast Network. Broadcasting live from Hobart Hall in Wayne, New Jersey. This is The Innovative. I think they're really unique. The Fearless. They have awesome variety. The Kick-Ass. I love Brave New Radio. The Sensational. I've never heard anything like it. This is the one and only Brave New Radio. The views and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not necessarily supported by WP 88.7 FM, station management, or the station owner, William Patterson University. Anyone wanting to offer differing opinions may do so by calling this show at 973-720-2738. Abusive callers will be rejected. Now here's your program on WP 88.7 FM, Brave New Radio. Here we are, Music Biz 101 on more on Brave New Radio. And more. And more on Brave New Radio. Yeah! So excited. Hey, I'm your professor, David Kirk Philp. And of course, right next to me, to me, we have your esteemed Dr. Esteban Marconi. And Marconi's on my right, your left tonight. We also have the fabulous, incredible, wonderfully talented Ashley Weltner, who's engineering us tonight. Thank you, Ashley, very much. Are you going to turn your mic on tonight, Ashley? You're allowed to. If you would like me to, I There will. we go. Ashley's mic is there on. We go. We're very excited. Uh, we are here, Music Biz 101 and, 101 and more on mm -hmm. Brave New Radio. We're listening to the very, very background, which is perfect to Rob Fusari's Don't Let Love Down. We have uh, some great stuff to talk about tonight. Before, uh, First, let's just get to some real quick business. Music Biz 101, WP.com. Sign up for our newsletter. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, The Fest of the Book. Music Biz 101 WP. And of course, the podcasts are always available on, on iTunes and SoundCloud. Just say Music Biz 101 ampersand more. Ampersand is that music note thing. Ah, yes, right? yes, yes, yes. It's amper, amper, A M P E R S A N D. Is that the proper spelling? Is that what you how you would spell it? I would have to look it up. Okay, that is, that is very good. And that's the, the thank you, the smart man. Okay, uh, thanks to Rob Fusari again. Thanks to the folks at Van Dyne Bruno Inc. at White Hat Management with artists like Charlie Puth. Dave Matthews and Kiss, there's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB. <laughs> hyphen. <laughs> Clean off that mic. CPA, as in certifiedpublicaccountant.com when you're ready. And also, we want to remind you that available right now at this second is Managing Your Band's Sixth Edition. Yes, it is. And that's uh, available many different places, but we're not allowed to talk about where it's available, or we can tell them we just can't talk about. You can't talk about prices. Okay, so it's uh, so it's not a million dollars each. No. no, no, but it's available for Kindle on Amazon. You can also go to Barnes and Noble or BackWingsStore.com. Mm -hmm. And we just did a great podcast with a fellow named Walter Daly, uh, all talking all about the book. We were on Instagram Live for a couple mm -hmm. minutes, and it was really cool. All right, why don't we get to our guest? Uh, Terry Please. Courier, are you on? Are you talking with us, Terry? 
Hey, welcome from Portland, Oregon. Yeah. From Portlandia. Terry, it's great to have you. Can I read a special bio for you that a, that a long-lost friend of yours had go, given to us tonight? All right. All right. This is a surprise for you. We reached out to some of your friends in the music business, and they wrote some questions in that we're going to ask you tonight. And also, specifically, remember Jim Caparo, who is the head of PGD, Polygram Group Distribution? Oh, very Facility? much so. One of the greats of uh, the music industry. Well, he believes the same as you, and here's, here's what he wrote for us to say to you tonight, so put on your seatbelt. He said, as a business evolved with new physical product configuration introductions, new merchandising schemes, new advertising and marketing transformations, new distribution versus customer policy development, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, just realized Terry was at the center of it all. His presence was felt and his words were respected. His unquestionable, it's hard for me to say these words, his unquestionable knowledge of retailing and of his consumers were impressive to all he came in contact with. His vision of the rapid changes to the marketplace were a beacon for many. In short, one of the true leaders of our industry, I have forever been a fan and his wisdom and guidance have served us as well. P.S. Let Terry know I still proudly wear the T-shirt he gave to me over 20 years ago. That That's is very a, impressive. Yes, that <laughs> is a, that is Terry Courier, and he's from Portland, Oregon, and he's the owner right now of Music Millennium. So Terry Courier on the air. You know what's more impressive? What's more Hello, impressive? Hello, everyone. Uh, he's mo it's more impressive that Jim Caparo can still fit into that T-shirt. Yes, after 20 <laughs> years. <laughs> and it's an extra small too. Yeah. So there we go. So anyway, how do you yeah. feel about that, Terry? That, oh, that was pretty impressive. Yeah, we thought so, too. You think you could live up to uh, any of that? Uh, uh, we'll find out. Won't we? <laughs> <laughs> no, great. And, uh, of course, we were in Nashville, and we saw you get the... Independent Spirit, Spirit Award. Award. Yes. And we reached out to Jim Donio today, too, actually, who's a friend of ours and a friend of our program. And he also had kind words to say, and he said... He said, I think it would be cool to ask Terry about his experience winning our Independent Spirit Award this year. So maybe you could start there. Well, I tell you, it's quite a, a surreal experience to be honored by your peers in that way. Um, I mean, I've, I've always been fiercely independent, um, but to, uh, to be honored by your class and um, your peers from the industry is is uh, something you don't ever expect. Mm -hmm. I, I go to work every day because of the music, and that's what drives me to do what I do. And um, so this was quite an honor. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah, let's, uh, why don't we um, just tell our listeners a little bit of your background and what Music Millennium is so that we all get on the same page. Well, I, I started in record retail in 1972. Mm. I did not grow up listening to the radio. Uh, when I was 16 and three quarters, I got a car, <laughs> and I started listening to the radio. And in those three months, uh, going into my 17th birthday, my life changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw my first concert uh, a week after my 17th birthday, Two weeks later, I applied for a job in a record store, and here I am 45 years later. My, my college counselor in high school uh, 
in January of that year said, you're not going to get your music scholarships, which is what I've been studying for. I, I practice four to six hours a day, went to music theory classes and really, really put a focus on that. And uh, they said, you're, you're not going to get your music scholarships if you don't get your applications in. And I said, well, I'm 17 years old, making 225 an hour, and now an assistant manager of a record store. It doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> That's great. What was that first concert you went to, by the way? It was Leon Russell and the Shelter People. Wow. And the op opening band was a band from Texas called Knitsinger. And ironically, uh, about 16, 17 years ago, I ended up, putting out a record by the guitar player in that band on uh, one of the two record labels that I owned at the time. Uh-huh. All comes well, full small circle. world, isn't it? Yeah. So would you uh, advocate someone who has the passion that you had for music to go into uh, independent retail today? Uh, it's looking better today than it did 10 years ago. Mm. Um Back when I started in the in the 70s, uh, the record industry was growing leaps and bounds. Mm -hmm. People could get into the industry without any business knowledge and succeed because music just became a bigger, bigger part of everybody's life. Um, recorded music was selling like, like crazy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, you know, at that time, we didn't have too many things to compete with. Uh, you had television, the movies, music on the radio, uh, recorded music. But as, as that decade went on, video games started to appear, then cable TV in the next decade, mm -hmm. then computers and iPhones and all these other things that took people away from the, the music experience that was happening like it did back then because they had a lot of other choices for their entertainment and free time. Mm -hmm. uh, today, I, I would recommend that somebody get into this business if they have the passion. You have to have the passion, though. You, it has to be the, music has to be that driving force that sends you to work every day. Um, you're not going to make a lot of money. Um, it's it, it is so rewarding. I mean, I wake up every day and I go, I, I got the best job in the world. Mm. I, I don't ever wake up and go, oh, I got to go to work today. And I'm a person that works six days a week, 12 hours a day. Mm. And had I had a job that I didn't care for in that way, uh, it would be a really taxing thing to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if uh, talk a little bit maybe about how your store in general has evolved over the 30 years. I mean, was it basically, well, 50 years. <laughs> was it basically, um, in the beginning, it was just basically vinyl, and then you had to move, of course, as the configurations moved. But then did you bring in the T-shirts and the candles and everything else to try to uh, keep it floating or what when we had those thin days when i when i started in 72 vinyl was was king it was the main configuration out there uh it was at the end of the 
there was some real to real pre-recorded tapes still being sold. Mm. Uh, 8-track tapes were being sold. <clears throat> we were just getting ready to go into, <clears throat> excuse me, into uh, cassettes. Yeah. Um, but none of those configurations took hold until the Walkman came out. Right. Um, the year of the Walkman, cassettes were 25% of the recorded music sales. Uh, within one year of the Walkman coming out, they were 50% mm. of all recorded music sales out there. Mm -hmm. um, it, it showed that the public was looking for a portable device for their music. Mm -hmm. um, during that time, though, vi vinyl stayed very vibrant. And um, the, the vinyl experience was the ultimate experience of, of any of those uh, configurations. Cassettes were almost like a disposable uh, configuration to uh, a lot of people, especially mm -hmm. people that were really serious music lovers. Um, you'd go into their houses, you could see their records were all in alphabetical order and in immaculate place, but they may have all their cassettes thrown in a corner or <laughs> in a bag or, or whatever. Uh, you go out to their car, there's cassettes sitting around right. all over the place. Sock drawer everywhere. <laughs> and then we got into the 80s and CDs started popping up. And I can remember buying my first CDs from uh, CBS Records. And you couldn't buy an individual title. You had to buy a box of 30 yeah. uh, assorted CDs. And to get the, the Michael Jackson in there that always kept selling, but you had to buy another box of 30 to, and end up with all these other titles at the time. And uh, uh, in, I think it was January 1985, I can remember doing inventory in the store, and all our CDs were the same price, and we all had a couple bins in the store. But that changed very rapidly. I remember sitting down with one of my employees, and he started bringing out all the statistics on there's you know, 1.75 turntables per household out there, and there's X amount of records per household. Vinyl's never going to go away. And I go, you know, I think within 10 years that, that CDs are going to take over this configuration, and we may not get to see vinyl in the future. And he goes, no, no, not going to happen. <laughs> well, it was just a short period of time there because by the end of the 80s, most of your major labels and distributors had quit producing vinyl and putting it out on their new releases, which was forcing a lot of customers to move over to the CD configuration who hadn't done it already. Mm -hmm. The story goes around uh, 1986, 87. Uh, the chain stores 
across America, which made up a lot of the record retail out there. Uh, they were they were getting pressure to bring in CDs, and they stated that they couldn't bring in a third configuration into their store because uh, they didn't have enough room and they couldn't expand their store because mall rents were so expensive. And pretty much the major distributors stated that the CD is here to stay and vinyl's on the out. And there was a mass exodus that year because back then vinyl was returnable. So all, all the large chains started sending back all their vinyl to make room for CDs. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at the statistics back there, vinyl took a big nosedive, 86, 87, and 88. Uh, sales were so far down, the industry just decided to get out of it. Mm-hmm. It was also uh, a positive for the industry to move to a new configuration because they then could re-record their entire catalog or what was selling. And then you, oh, yeah. you uh, would have the Billy industry, Joel on three different configurations. It, it, it invigorated the business at, at, at uh, within the industry because, you know, a lot of people just decided to rebuy their yeah. record collections again. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people got rid of their vinyl at that time and just went to CD. Some people kept their vinyl and just started building on with mm-hmm. CDs, and, um, yeah, CDs kept growing and growing and growing all the way up until about 19, um, oh, excuse me, uh, yeah, about 1999 to 2000, right. Napster. Um, when Napster came along, and at that particular point, there was a big rebellion going on out there in consumer land uh, about the price, the list price of CDs in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of 1898 lists and 1998 yeah. lists, yeah. new releases coming out. So there was this whole contingency out there that were building a revolt against you know, physical goods and mm-hmm. the CD in particular because they they thought they were, you know, getting jacked around and paying too much for CD prices. Right, right. And so when Napster happened, this particular group of people out there were out there, you know, really promoting it in a big way mm-hmm. that, hey, you can get music for free. You can get music for free, yeah. you know. Uh don't yeah. support the record industry. Just go out there and get free music. Right. And in in the year 2000, there were 7,500 record stores in America. And by 2007, there was 1,850. Whoa. During that time, the media had been painting a picture that record stores were going away they were going to be gone. They weren't going to happen in the future. And they were partially right. There was the big demise. Um, but in 2008, uh, I'll go back a little ways. In, 
1995, I started this group called the Coalition of Independent Music Stores. Right. And uh, I was looking to put together a group of retailers that were in non-competitive marketplaces. So you could have a store in Denver, Colorado, Austin, and Portland, Oregon that were like a support group and also able to work records together. And one of the ideas behind that was at the time, some of the big box retailers were using music as a loss leader to get them into their store. And in the process, they were putting a number of independent retailers out of business because these big boxes were selling product at under cost. Mm -hmm. And so the independent stores couldn't compete with them. And I go, you know, we had the support group and we could share ideas maybe we could keep these stores alive out there and that's what what happened we had the coalition of independent music stores when we first started we had oh about 50 stores and we got up to 70 some stores mm-hmm. um and out of that two other coalitions started um the directors of record stores and Ames. Mm. And in 2008, these three coalitions worked together to go to the, the industry and try to get them to make some compelling product with great content uh, on vinyl. Mm. And have a special day for it, which would be called Record Store Day. Mm-hmm. And this came out of an idea of a guy up in the New England area at Bull Moose Record, Chris, um, in response to Comic Book Day that happened in that industry. Yeah. And that first year, we were able to get 50 titles to be released, all limited edition, many of them hand-numbered, some of them live performances that had never been out before, many of them on colored vinyl. And I think the industry looked at it as kind of throwing us a bone at the time Mm -hmm. because the, the rest of their customers, the big box retailers, the Amazons, all those stores really didn't care about vinyl at that time Mm -hmm. where many of us independent stores even though the industry had tried to force it to die many of us were out there with you know pretty good size used vinyl sections in our store and still carrying what vinyl we could get out there many little independent labels would make uh, vinyl releases, labels like Sub Pop um, did whatever they could to put things out on vinyl. Mm-hmm. Um, and that first year was very successful. This this last April was the 10th annual Record Store Day, and there was over 350 releases on vinyl. Yeah. And if you look at the arc of the increase in vinyl sales, from 2008 to last year, you can attribute it all 
to that first record store day. Mm-hmm. And with each year, vinyl has increased to where now it's, I think it's like 13.5% of the physical goods. Yeah, it has sold. leveled off. I know that this year. Yeah. And the, the good thing about vinyl was, you know, from that time Napster came about to probably, especially 2010. In, that, in those 10 years, our customer base was continuing to decline. Our older customers were downsizing or passing away, <laughs> and we weren't getting any of the, the youth customers. And the youth customers has always been a big part of the backbone of, of record sales and recorded music sales. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were really enthralled with digital music, so we weren't seeing them in the store. Mm-hmm. Uh, with vinyl, all of a sudden, this younger generation was pretty enthralled with it. I think a lot of them were going to garage sales and going to our stores, to our $1, $2, $3 sections, mm-hmm. and checking some of these things out and finding a turntable at a garage sale and finding out that they could try out music pretty cheap. Um, and at the same time, they found out that the quality of sound in vinyl was much more superior to the MP3 mm-hmm. that it just grabbed them. So now what we're seeing is the difference from a decade ago where people were downloading songs and listening to them. Uh, we're seeing a lot of customers that in that youth marketplace buying vinyl, going home, sitting in front of the turntable, listening to side one, flipping it over, listening to side two, and getting that whole album experience, which is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I have a, um, a question. Going back to the Walkman, and I, my the story I had heard um, was in 1980, the head of Sony Corp brought everybody into the lobby, and uh, he stood on the top of that big staircase, and he held up the Walkman, and he said, this is the future of our business. And, of course... Half of the people there thought he had too much sake or whatever. They thought he was, <laughs> he was crazy. But actually, it really brought into what is known in the late 90s as the death to high fidelity, where we all now have beer, earbuds, and if you're going to have $15 earbuds or even $30 earbuds, it's really not going to matter how great the sound is. Do you think if oh, you're, we... You're- you're really true on that. Yeah, if we didn't, if that didn't happen, and then of course we still do personal listening today, everybody on their phone and so on. But if that didn't happen, would you see? Uh, could you envision a different industry than we have now? Uh, I, th- I think, I think, I think it could have. Uh, I think CDs still would have overtook and vinyl sales at that time mm-hmm. but maybe vinyl wouldn't have went away mm-hmm. um, when, in the 1970s if 
if you were a recorded music buyer, um, you a great deal of that sector was on a quest to get the best quality of sound yeah. they possibly could. Yeah. So they kept upgrading their their stereo systems. Mm-hmm. Oh man, I got to get some better speakers. I got to get a better right. tune table. I got to get a new amp. Um, some people got into audiophile recordings. Yeah. Um, but there was some amazing sounds, and it's very true that um, when when digital music happened, the the whole <laughs> philosophy and feeling of many of the music consumers out there changed altogether. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you when you can get something for free, you're you you don't have as much. Um, you're, you set your you set the bar much lower than you do mm-hmm. when you pay for something. When yeah. you pay for something, you expect it to have X amount of quality for the money you spent on it. When you're getting something for free, a lot of people just accept that, mm-hmm. and so they accept the poor quality of listening to MP3s. Um, but yeah, going back to the Walkman, uh, convenience kind of killed um, that quest for that high bar of audio sound mm-hmm. because people goes, oh, I can carry the music around with me now. And they, they, they gave up, a certain amount of the music consumers out there gave up having that high quality of sound for yeah. convenience. Yeah, no question. You going to read a tweet? Or? Yeah, uh, another person who wrote into us who we asked for a comment was, is, is Billy Fields, who's a VP of Sales and Account Management at WIA. And um, you know Billy, obviously. I saw Billy last week in New York. Oh, no, okay. oh that's right. You were here last week. All I right. forgot about that. Um, Billy said, Terry is one of the best. I always enjoy getting music and history lessons from him. And... His first comment, and you kind of touched upon it, was about uh, CIMS, the Coalition of Independent Music Stores. Can you get in just a little bit? Because I'm trying to, when I was talking to students about having you on the air, one thing we talked about was sort of, uh, of all the guests we've had uh, on our our radio show and podcast, um, I guess the closest to this we've come is we've had uh, Michael Kurtz, who's the founder of co-founder of Music Biz. I'm sorry, Record Store Day, and and maybe you. So we haven't had much discussion about the uh, Coalition of Independent Music Stores. Can you talk about how many stores are in that now? Um, who's leading it? What you guys do across the country to promote? Besides Record Store Day, are there other things that you do to promote independent record retail? Yes, uh, the Coalition of Independent Music Store is um, 22 years old now. Um, And when we first started the group, um, one of the main things we did was this program called Adopt-A-Ban. And uh, me and Don Van Cleve, we were kind of running the ship. The Coalition of Independent Music Stores started 
in a meeting in San Francisco. In, in 1993, um, four of the major distribution companies out of the big six came up with policies that stated that they wouldn't support stores with advertising or marketing money that were selling used CDs. Mm. And I felt that was quite wrong. And at the time, we weren't selling that many used CDs, but it's still, we should be able to sell whatever we wanted. So I made a type three-page letter and mailed it out to about 100 label presidents, vice presidents, distribution presidents, and people from the trade publication stating my feelings on it. And from that January till June, it became this little war between me and the industry, and the trade publications kept writing about it. And in that time, a certain amount of retailers started coming out and calling me on the phone and goes, hey, I read what you're doing out there. Just like to lend my support if there's anything I can do. And then end of June, Garth Brooks stated that he didn't want his new album sold in stores that sold used CDs. He, he felt that if it was sold again, the songwriters should get paid off the shelf of our store within 10 minutes of that press conference. And I invited the public in Portland down about nine days later to bring down their Garth Brooks CDs, vinyl, VHS tapes, and posters, and we were going to barbecue them on the grill. <laughs> and we did it, and in that week, every piece of media in this town had either come down to the store or called, and they all showed up in the parking lot that day, that I decided that I was going to take this thing on tour. So I set up this tour from Bellingham, Washington, which is up by the Canadian border, down to San Diego, California, and set up a barbecue for retail freedom tour and went to nine record stores where we did similar events. And that's where I found out that in other independent stores have the same problems and common interests, and that's where the idea germinated for the Coalition of Independent Music Stores. So I started talking to Mark Cope at the Album Network, um, which was a industry publication, about putting a group together um, that did have common interests and could be used as a support group. And he helped set up a meeting in San Francisco in 95, and we had about 20-some retailers in, in that room to see if we could have find common ground to work together. And after a few hours, it was decided we did, and Don Van Cleve from Mag Magic Platters in Al Alabama and Steve Bergman uh, up in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, from school kids, raised their hand to help the organization. And then Mark Cope from the Album Network says Terry should be part of that. So the three of us went out in the hall. Don says, why don't I be president? Why don't you be vice president? Why don't you be secretary treasurer? And there we were. <laughs> you know? 
Now we had to decide what to do. So we came up with this program called Adopt-A-Ban. And it was a program where for a month period of time, we would work a project that we felt all of our stores would get behind. And at that time, there was a lot of money in, in the industry. So we would go to the labels and say, hey, can you support this with marketing money? And our stores will do this program. And we did a few projects. Uh, some of our early projects were like Southern Culture on the Skids, Dirt Track Date. Um, oh, um, uh, let's let's see. We did Hum. Um, we did a Ben Harper. Ben Harper was one of our big success stories back then, and many of these records. They were mostly not on the Billboard Top 200 at the time. And we got behind these records, and all of a sudden, these records started climbing up on the chart. And the labels out there started seeing what the independent stores could do. Because at that particular time, the, the industry really just paid attention to their top 10 or 12 accounts. They had people like Tower Records and warehouse records and trans world and all these national chains but us little guys we we were kind of more like a pain in the butt to to took a lot of work for them to try to get around to all of us so they just didn't do it and this gave them an opportunity to go to a group of 50 to 70 stores and do a project like this with one phone call and they really liked the idea. And we were very successful with these records, so they started coming to us with a lot of other projects. And over the years, we started doing coordinating listening station programs in our store, where our stores put in listening stations in all our stores. Many of the stores in our group had never seen anybody from a major label or a major distributor in their entire time being open as a record store. And we were able to get these people open to buy direct. Um, the next thing you know, these stores were getting phone calls. They were getting promotional copies in the mail to play in their store. They were getting the attention that they needed. And we were really making a difference out there. Now, we could only do X amount of stores. Me and Don were really operating this coalition out of our back rooms. And so we had to say no to a lot of stores. And we kind of picked stores that were full catalog stores. And some of the other stores actually kind of got miffed that they we wouldn't let them in our group. And we had to make that cutoff line. So the next thing you know, the, the Music Monitor Network, which changed later to the director of record stores, started... And they were mostly small store chains, um, you know, four, five, six to ten store chains. They didn't fit our profile as much, and they started as a group, and they became very successful. And then uh, this other group called the Association for Independent Music um, Stores, known as AIMS, 
they came about, and many of the stores in that group were were not full catalog stores, were a little more focused, but in the ultimate end, they ended up with some stores that were full catalog, and many of the stores that were only doing certain genres uh, became full catalog stores because now they were getting more attention and they were getting tools to be able to do better business in their stores. Interesting. So, yeah, so the, there was gr a great influence that you ended up having on the industry, which is very cool, especially on, on retail. Um, Steve Corbin is another old friend of yours. He's the senior VP of sales, counsel, and culture at, at WIA also. And he just I had. I him last week, too. Uh, you, you were in New York. You just did the rounds like every time we go, and we did the same thing. Yeah, but we didn't see. We had never seen Steve at Warner yet. Every time we go there, he's and not it, there. Yeah, he's not there. Yes. Must he's, be something about us. Yes, he doesn't like uh, our odor. But <laughs> Steve uh, said, my very simple comment is Terry is rare in that he is obviously a leader in our retail space, but at the same time remains so down-to-earth and genuine. We're lucky to have him in our industry, and I believe all of us would agree on that point. And so far, Terry, we agree on the Music Biz 101 and More radio show, but you still have time to blow it. So, um, <laughs> you know, continue on your best behavior. No F-bombs, by the way, Terry. I know you're itching to, to do it. <laughs> I, I, we, I keep talking to uh, to Marconi. We lead the league, we say, in F-bombs on this show because we get all these guys from the industry and they get comfortable and they forget that they're on the radio and then they just start effing right. lots of things and it becomes, right. becomes an issue. But um, uh, Ashley Welter is our engineer and she actually has a question for you as well. All right. Do you remember when Jeff Buckley played at your store? Oh, I sure do. Um, you know, with, we... We went down and we ended up talking to him, and uh, uh, we got into some great conversations about Nostra Faka Ali Khan mm. and different other artists that he was listening to at that time. Um, I mean, it was such a sad loss when, when he passed away. Mm. And I, I can remember uh, a couple of us that were still in the building from when he was in the store just reflecting back of uh, being able to have that opportunity to have an artist of you know that magnitude actually be in our store and being able to interface with them because we're in contact pretty regularly with his uh jeff buckley's former former manager dave Laurie. who's and, writing a book yeah who just uh, has a book coming out about jeff buckley and Dave was talking about, specifically in, in one of our classes, when uh, Jeff played at Music Millennium back in, I guess this would be 92, 93, something like that. Yeah. So, so, could you have, so you have a live space there for bands and artists to come in and perform. It's like a loft, right? It's above. Yeah. In, in 1989, which was going to be the 20th anniversary of Music Millennium, I was trying to think of something to do to celebrate the anniversary. And I turned to the then majority owner and I said, hey, why don't we have 20 straight days of live music in the store? And he goes, where are you going to do it? And I pointed upstairs in the mezzanine area. <laughs> and uh, we went into looking to rent a sound system for 20 days. And in the process decided, why don't we just buy a sound system and we'll always have it here in case... Somebody comes by, and we can get them to play in the store. Um, 
most of the artists we did in that anniversary, we did 40 straight days of live music wow. at the Ultimate Inn, and they were mostly local artists because that's who we reached out to. But that year, we we did Randy Newman's only ever in-store live performance, and he sang Happy Birthday to the store. Hmm. That's cool. uh, we had Soundgarden here on Street Day to Louder Than Love, but some somehow... Um, uh, we have now done probably close to 5,000 in-store live appearances. Wow. And, I mean, the last five albums that Steve Earle has put out, he has flown in from New York City to play a music millennium on street week of his, his release. Mm. Uh, we try to make a really comfortable uh, situation for the artist. I mean, the artist are probably one of the most important pieces of the puzzle out there. Without them making great music, I wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. That's great. We're, we're going to reach back to you uh, offline uh, sometime soon because uh, we mentioned we're working with Dave Laurie, and, and he's doing this. He's actually going oh, yeah. he, to be doing a, a book tour, and we're going to reach out to you and see if we can pitch you on the idea of having him do sort of a, a stop in your store. To talk about oh you definitely so we we would love that that's cool sounds good um we just got a tweet just out of the blue um and going back to vinyl from a group the butcher brothers with a z uh, and they want to know has vinyl still seen an increase this week like it did in 2016 are you seeing vinyl still an uptick of that or are you seeing it flattening out did we talk about it? did he say that already no i said that the statistics show that it flattened out okay. this year. Is that what you're seeing in your store, Terry? Uh, we're seeing a continually increase. Mm, okay. um, we're, we're, we're definitely seeing the increase in the younger generation. As, you know, more kids are buying these records. Their friends are finding out. They're making new friends and inviting them into the vinyl experience. Um, you know, every year the record store day has happened we've walked away and goes it can't get any better than this <laughs> and each year it continues to increase and increase um it you know we're we still sell a lot of cds in our store mm -hmm. but 50 percent of our business here is in vinyl um we're in a marketplace with almost 30 record stores in our town Whoa. Probably more record really? stores than any, any other market in the United States. And a great deal of them are just selling vinyl only. And many of those are, are really heavily on the used side. Mm -hmm. But I can't believe the amount of new vinyl that's sold out there. Mm -hmm. This past year, we probably sold 75 copies brand new of Fleetwood Mac Rumors. And... Mostly, most of those were sold to a younger generation. Yeah. Is Dark Side of the Moon still selling? Oh, Dark Side <laughs> of the Moon actually outsold Fleetwood Mac. So, yeah, that's a that's good a one vinyl. to point out. That's a, that, that has to be on vinyl. I mean, yeah. we really to listen to that. Yeah. And, of course, the Cat soundtrack. So, uh, 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 Dana Amy. <laughs> Dana Amy has a question for you. This is something we found out about. 
Um, you have a liquor license. She wants to know what the process, what was the process like in acquiring a liquor license for your record store, and why have you done that? Uh, I thought about doing it seven or eight years ago, and um, then I really got around to wanting to do it about four years ago, um, and uh, some complications came up, and now, now we're back at it again, and we should have it up by uh, Thanksgiving. Um, we, you know, like so many other things in our store that we've added to our inventory, um, it's it's another reason why people will hang around the store a bit mm. longer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in our case, we're we're a destination store. It's not mm-hmm. like you can just run across the street and get a soda and come back or whatever, uh, or get a beer or something like that. So. After a certain amount of shopping time, customers will go, hey, let's go down to Holman's Bar, let's go down to here, let's go down to there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just thought, you know, to have that convenience in the store uh, would would make it better for our customers. And, uh, you know, we, we do a lot of in-store performances, too. And uh, we, we, we got asked for every imaginable beverage and we had zero beverages here so we're reconfiguring a section of the store we'll be carrying soft drinks and juices and uh you know beer and wine mm-hmm. how many square foot footage do you have what's that how many square footage do you have uh we have about five and a half thousand square foot oh, but nice. Um, there's probably enough inventory in this store for a 10,000-square-foot plus store. We used to have a 6,000-square-foot store, too, which we closed down 10 years ago because uh, the rent in that area had went up astronomically. Um, And we had, even though it was 500 square feet larger, it had half the inventory of this store. Mm. So... This bar we're putting in isn't going to have seating or anything like that. It's just you can go up to the counter, you can grab a beer or a glass of wine and go about your music shopping. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's it's, it's great. And, of course, from a business standpoint, the markup can be very good for beer and wine. Yeah. I mean, a a lot of record stores, when, when business started going down around 2000, a lot of record stores had to look at other items to complement their inventory with uh, that were profitable in order to keep their business going. So we've all made a certain amount of changes out there. You know, Record Archive in Rochester, New York, put in a bar this last year, and it it's become a big, big part of their business. Um, they have a they have a very large store, and they have probably a two to three thousand square foot area where their bar is, and it's it's come down to a point where people are, are wanting to rent out that area to have birthday parties and listening events. Um, so it's it's really become a good part of their business. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, final, we have one final question that we have because uh, we only have about 60 seconds left. I had, All right, then you'll ask your question because we'll, you're going to ask your question anyway and then well, we're going to go over and we'll yes, get in trouble. So but I'm gonna sorry, you, sorry I'm to everybody you, who sent a tweet. I'm going to need you care. for this question. Me? Yes. And I wanted to ask you what was the a wildest promotion you've seen uh, that an independent band has done because last week we had on... On the radio show? The beer... Oh, oh, we had... Um, uh, Adam Richie. Adam Ritchie, right? Who who uh, created a, a project where he actually promotes his new album on beer cans. And yes, he's based he found in, a craft uh, brewery right. that invented a beer for them and titled it the name of the title of the album, and then it was all over the certain amount of beer cans right. uh, in six packs and so on. And then on that can was a code to. Uh, Download the album. Yeah, go wherever and download the album. So I don't know wow, if you've ever heard anything that, like that. that. That's pretty incredible. I, you know, there. I don't know what the wildest one that I've ever seen. I do like when Mud Honey played on top of the Space Needle in Seattle. Oh. Um, that definitely brought a lot of attention to the band. All right. Yeah. In fact, I'll send an email to you, Terry, with uh, info about that, the, the, the Adam Ritchie thing, just so you yeah, can see what are. it was. Yeah, yeah, I'd definitely be interested in that. Because yeah. it might be something that you could do from your perspective. Maybe there's a craft brewery in the Portland area. Maybe thousands. If out of that, and you could do something themed around Record Store Day and Music Millennium. Yeah, something um, like that. A good idea oh, that you could steal. Oh, yeah, cool. All right. Well, Terry, and have that beer in his store. Uh, and then, you, oh, yeah, that's right. And then you would sell the beer, so it's yeah. all self-contained. Yeah. You're killing it, Terry. We like appreciate it. it. Yeah, we, we like this, and we we're going to do marketing. We're just for you. in a marketing campaign for you, <laughs> right, right. Terry. We'll have you back. I, I love talking it. about music, so you can call me anytime. Well, that's cool. So we need to go, but we we appreciate you, Terry Courier from Music Millennium. How do how do people find out? How do they? Uh, what's the uh, website and all that? Uh, it's musicmillennium.com, and I mean you can see what we're doing all the time. We we have a. Uh, section on there with all our live in-store music mm -hmm. events and uh, anything else that we might be doing. That's cool. Great. Well, you've been doing a great job with us on Music Biz One Word More. So thank you, Terry. Terry Kerr, everybody. Yes. Thanks, hey, Terry. have a good you, night. You're you going to be in uh, Nashville this May? I will be in Nashville. Will you? Yes. Yes, we'll be there doing oh, our show I, again. I look forward to seeing yeah, you guys. We'll, we'll give you a big old bear hug, and we promise not we'll to hurt you. Up. <laughs> right. Thanks, all Terry. Right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. So we're about to end the show now, and yes. uh, we'll say goodbye. Down then, memory lane. Yes, that was very good. And now we're going to air a brand new promo for our show. But our show is over. But the show is over, but the promo will tease ah, people to listen next week. Of course, week. next week we have Ariel. Uh, next week is Ariel Hyatt, yes. who is a social media uh, PR smart person. person from Cyber PR. After that, um, Jay Van Dyke, who's one of the original members of the Lumineers, is yes. coming in in the studio with us. And then um, we have some great stuff coming up all the way through the end of Year of Our Lord 2017. Oh. So there we go. So, Ashley Weltner, thank you very much. Ashley yes. Weltner, she did so great. Dr. Esteban Marconi, you did an amazing job tonight. Well, thank you. And so, as usual, did you, Professor Philp. I thank you so much. Should I give you a plug? Please give me a plug in my hair. Yes, Professor Philp, you will not be able to get rid of him now. You will be hearing him until he wants to stop. That's right. Because he has passed one hurdle for 10-year... And also a promotion to associate professor of music. That's right. So if you think he had a swell head before, 
Wait till you catch the next 10 shows. It only grows. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and my pocketbook grows because now I will become a millionaire that's working right. as a professor of the music industry at William Patterson University. So thank you very much. So thank you, everybody, for listening at the end of the show. By the way, thank you for those of us who tweeted, and sorry we couldn't get to them all. So thank you again, Dr. Esteban. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Terry Courier. At the end of every Music Biz 101 and more show, we do not say hello. That would be silly. Wouldn't it be silly, Ashley? Be very silly. It'd be very silly. So at the end of every show, we say, and listen to, the, listen to this promo because here it comes. At the end of every, every show, we say, Adios! Hey, Dave, what do Paul Sinclair from Atlantic, Tom Hefter from Ticketmaster, Rosie Lopez from Tommy Boy, and Heather Ellis from Pandora all have in common? They're all big wigs in the music and entertainment industry, Esteban. And? They all hate warm beer. And? They've all been guests on the Music Biz 101 and More radio show at 8 o'clock on Wednesday nights. Bingo. If you want to learn more about the music and entertainment biz, tweet in a question and tune in every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock to Music, music Biz 101 and More on Brave New Radio. Radio.